Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focused on Exodus 13 through 18. Now you can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. And uh, I've also linked some articles that may be helpful for y'all in thinking through some of the questions that may come up uh, as you're reading through these chapters. And if questions do come up during the course of your reading, please ask them by going to bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A-S, lowercase S-K, hyphen, capital O, capital T. Now, Exodus 13 through 18 begins to explore the identity of the Israelites after they've been released from slavery. How will they chart a course of service to God instead of service as Egyptian slaves? What will they need to learn? What will they need to unlearn? One important point to make, uh, particularly as regards the idea of service for the Hebrew people, is that the Hebrew word for service is the same word as uh, the word for worship. What we worship, we serve. What we serve, we worship. And so there's a lot of unlearning that the Hebrew people have to do uh, in coming from being slaves to being their own people. And it begins uh, in Exodus 13, where God kicks off their exodus from the promised land, not with the parting of the Red Sea, which will come, but with a commemoration, asking them, dedicate your firstborn of everything to me, because it was your firstborn that I spared uh, when, I, when you covered your houses, your door frames with blood from, from, from a lamb from your flocks. So by doing this, God has put a claim on the firstborn of every beast and of every human. And uh, this is sort of God's version of primogeniture, you could think. Uh, you saw all throughout Genesis that primogeniture was sort of uh, subverted at every, uh, in every available space. Here, God names the fact that every firstborn child now belongs to God. And it's, in fact, a firstborn child that God will use to redeem the world. Uh, it's through the death of, of God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ, uh, that the, the world will be saved. So there's not so much an inheritance in this primogeniture as there is a responsibility. And uh, what's also important here, I think, is that uh, there's a commemorative aspect to this. Uh, we sometimes avoid going to church when we're just doing it ritually. I had a friend in college who said, you know, I don't ever go to church when I don't feel like worshiping. And I thought about that for a little bit because it didn't seem quite right, but I couldn't figure out why. And I think the reason is so frequently you're not going to church for yourself. You're going to church on, on behalf of other people, you're going to church, not necessarily to build your own faith, but to gather with people and help build their faith as well. The Christian life is as much about receiving as it is about giving. And uh, when the Israelites here are commanded to commemorate the Passover, this is something where even if they don't feel like doing it in a given year, it's important because this is how you teach your children who God is. This is how you teach your children who we as a nation, as a people, are called to be. 
This is how you remember the magnificent acts of God, not only in the plagues, but also in the deliverance from the Egyptians as they pursued the Israelites almost into the Red Sea. So we see in Exodus 14 and 15 uh, this story that uh, may be familiar to many of you. Um, you've got uh, this the, the Egyptians chasing down the Israelites, Moses puts his staff in the ground, raises his staff, you know, depending on, on, on how you envision it. Uh, and then the waters pile up and the Israelites walk through on dry land before uh, the, the waters crash back down on Pharaoh and his crew. And this is more or less how the story goes, except there are some hiccups here. The Hebrew uh, that's translated Red Sea uh, can also be translated Sea of Reeds. And while the Red Sea is deep and and wide and truly would take a supernatural uh, event in order for uh, people to walk across it on dry land, uh, the Sea of Reeds, we don't really know what that is, but that sounds a whole lot more like marshland. Either way, and, and scholars aren't quite sure where this Red Sea crossing happened. Either way, you've got a miracle here. Either the water was parted supernaturally or the Egyptian army was stymied supernaturally. You see, if the water were too shallow uh, for the parting of the sea to be a supernatural event, then surely the drowning of Pharaoh and his army would have been supernatural. Whereas vice versa, if you know the drowning just sort of happened naturally, well, then the parting of the Red Sea must have been supernatural. There's a whole handful of potential paths the Israelites could have taken out of Egypt on their way to the Promised Land, and there are a variety of different reasons for these paths. I've linked one particular uh, fella who's done uh, quite a bit of research on this, uh, and I've linked uh, an article he wrote uh, in the show notes, so you can look at that if you'd like. Uh, Many of your Bibles may also have maps that suggest ways that the Israelites may have traveled. Um, it's really interesting to kind of look at the guesswork of scholars around this. Uh, and if, if you're a geography nerd or a history nerd, this is something that you might want to look into a little bit. It's, it's pretty fun. So uh, we've got a couple of different uh, traditions that are represented in the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, as, as I may have mentioned, I don't remember if I've mentioned it yet, uh, it's thought by scholars that the first five books of the Bible were written uh, by and large by three different sources. There's a source called the Elohist for Elohim because that source tended to use Elohim more than they tended to use Yahweh in their writing. There's a source called the Yahwist uh, for the opposite reason. That source tended to use Yahweh more, and there are certain stylistic pieces to this as well. And finally, there's a priestly source, um, and there's some specific styles of the priestly source as well. And and the uh, idea that scholars have is that these three sources were sort of collected independently and then fused together, knit together um, in, in sort of this beautiful tapestry that we now have as our Hebrew Bible as our Old Testament. And uh, looking at uh, Exodus 14 and 15, we can see a couple of these traditions coming to light. In Exodus 15, there's this wonderful song about how horse and rider God has thrown into the sea, um, how uh, there's this idea that God has like actually bodily tossed them into the sea. And that's not something we get with the rest of the narrative. 
The rest of the narrative, we see stuff like uh, God uh, coming down and, and, and causing the Egyptians not to be able to see, or, or we hear stuff about God uh, making the Egyptian chariot's wheels fall off or get stuck. Um, and, and so there's some other things going on here. And, and whatever the case, it's not important, at least in my mind, that the Bible get all of the details precisely accurate to how they actually happened. What I think the Bible is actually trying to do is to get not at the lowercase t truth, the scientific truth, but to get at the capital T truth, the truth that is that matters, right? These aren't just factoids. This is truth about God and truth about the human condition. Exodus 15 is one of the older poems in the Old Testament. Uh, we can see uh, how the ancient Hebrews would celebrate a deliverance from God here. And uh, it's, it's really quite beautiful. Um, there's, there's a couple of attempts that folks have made to put it to music. Uh, I, I've linked uh, one of them below so that you can take a listen. Um, I, I'm not quite sure it does it justice, but it's fun to imagine this as being set to music. It helps make this part of the story come alive. So after God parts the Red Sea, the Israelites never doubt him again, right? Well, no, not, not so much. Uh, there is a constant refrain, much like the refrain of horse and rider God has thrown into the sea. There's a constant refrain throughout their time in the wilderness of the people murmuring or grumbling against Moses and against God. Uh, one of uh, my teachers put it to me this way, that Pharaoh has finally, by force, let God's people go, but God's people haven't let Pharaoh go. Uh, you hear this in their voices as they talk about, you know, oh, that we were by the flesh pots in Egypt, that we would have bread and we would eat until we're full. Or, or you know, the other uh, one, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? In both cases, there's a sort of looking back through rose-colored glasses that happens. We tend to do this, looking at our past bondage through rose-colored glasses. Oh, it wasn't that bad, maybe we'll say. Oh, we could have done better. We, uh, we could have stayed in that situation longer, maybe we'll say. If you've ever been, if you've ever had the misfortune of having been in an abusive relationship, you probably know what it feels like to second-guess your intuition day in and day out. This is something called gaslighting. And this is what the uh, Israelites are almost doing to themselves. They are rewriting their reality uh, in, in, in a way that makes it more enviable to have been in Egypt. Uh, and, and this is sometimes what we do in situations of trauma. And surely the Israelites have been through some trauma having been turned into slaves, having had to experience years, maybe decades of their firstborn sons being thrown into the Nile, um, having to uh, deal with all these plagues that hit Egypt. Uh, this makes sense. Now, there are ways to deal with trauma that don't involve uh, calling your leaders to task or calling your God to task. There are healthier ways to deal with trauma. And, and the Israelites um, and God's people generally 
have trouble picking the healthy way to deal with trauma. Uh, We tend to uh, accuse God of being unjust when we're actually um, just (laughs) digging ourselves out of the, the hole that we've put ourselves in. Uh, And yet, in spite of all of our foibles, God always provides abundantly. Uh, We see this with the manna and with the quail, that uh, God didn't need to uh, listen and hear the people's cry, and yet God does. And God gives them something that will nourish them, something rich. They had bread from manna. They had meat in their flesh pots from the quail. And just like with the plagues, there are a variety of different attempts that have been made to explain manna and quail and the arrival of these foods in a naturalistic way. And, you know, God may have used natural means in order to bring about this miracle. Um, But regardless of how God did it, this is truly a miraculous way of providing. Uh, we see this also when they arrive at, at the, the, the 12 springs of water. This is a number of completion with 70 uh, uh, plum trees. No, excuse me, fig trees is what, what it is. It's a number of completion, and it names the fact that the Israelites are on the right track, basically. Now, So frequently, getting back to this thought, so frequently God's people are reluctant followers. And we look back, again, with joy on our previous bondage. What we're called to do, I think, is to go bravely forward, being courageous in how we follow God, even though it may be harder than living a life of slavery. God has freed us from sin and death, and we need to let sin and death go. We need to let go of guilt and shame that we may be carrying around just the same way that God has let go of that guilt and shame. So there's this spiritual testing that goes on at the beginning of their time in the wilderness. And this is how it always happens, doesn't it? That in the midst of spiritual testing, there's another foe that comes at us. It's not, (laughs) it's like we can't just deal with one thing at a time. When it rains, it pours. And that's what happens with the Israelites here. The Amalekites show up. And the Amalekites have been and will be a thorn in the side of Israel for, for some time here. They're not real nice people. They get in the way of the Israelites. And, and, and the Amalekites here attack the Israelites. And um, there's two fronts that the Israelites need to fight this battle on. There's the front that is sort of the spiritual, um, um, I guess, God front, for lack of a better term. We'll come back to that. Uh, but then there's the, the physical, the actual battling. And this is the first time that the Hebrew people have been involved in this sort of a skirmish since they left Egypt. And, and they hold their own, for the most part, against these likely battle-hardened warriors. Uh, so, so they know what they're doing. Um, and, and, and this is an important point, and that's that when we get into doing battle with the things that, uh, that trip us up, um, you may not have a nation that is coming to invade your home, but you do have struggles that invade your marriage, or struggles or sins that 
follow you home from your your occupation or follow you home from the activities that you do in your retirement. And, and these sins, these, these areas of brokenness, that's your Amalek. And your Amalek, uh, your Amalekites in your life tend to attack when you're not ready, which means that you need to train your mind and you need to train your body to do battle. Uh, and and like, like I mentioned earlier, there are two fronts this battle is fought on. There's, of course, the physical front, and then there's the front that Moses fights on, the spiritual God front, where... Um, it's not just the military strength or the strength of will that banishes Amalek. Moses engages in a spiritual test of endurance that swung the battle. And Moses was not there on his own. Moses had support. He had support from other leaders in the community. Um, good functioning communities will not let leaders go it alone. They'll uh, make sure that there are folks who are holding up the arms of the leaders so that uh, the the rest of the community the rest of the community can do good work. In your life, you need uh, uh, folks who can hold up your arms, uh, who can help you to spiritually endure when you're fighting against the Amaleks that come into your life. There's a parallel passage uh, that comes, or a chapter that comes right after this, about Jethro coming and visiting Moses. And uh, it's not as exciting, uh, initially anyway, as the battle with the Amalekites, but it is just as impactful. In both cases, what, one of the things that's being taught to Moses is that leaders cannot go it alone. There are so many things that leaders tend to want to do, so many different ways leaders tend to want to serve their communities, but the limiting factor on a leader isn't just skill. There are some leaders that have different skill sets, of course, but um, it's often not skill. Often it's time and energy that if a leader were to do everything the leader is good at, the leader would not have time to do any of it. Uh, so what Moses needs to do is not ask himself, well, how many of these uh, uh, situations can I render judgment on? Instead, Moses needs to ask himself, what are the situations that need me to render judgment? And what are the situations in which I can give trusted lieutenants and trusted deputies more power? This is the strategy of delegation. And any leader uh, who has led for any length of time knows how important delegation is. Leaders cannot be bottlenecks. It's often better to develop talent than to do everything solo. And Jethro, um, Moses' father-in-law, who is a priest of Midian, by the way, knows this intimately. As a priest, he knows that there are certain things that people will come to him about that only he can take care of. He serves as the intermediary between God and people to some degree. Now, Moses is a, a similar, in a similar position with the people of Israel. So there are things that only Moses can do. Other things he needs to push off his plate and onto other people's plates. Um, another way of saying this is um, as leaders... Only call your own number when your particular skill set is necessary. Otherwise, let other folks train. Let other folks get the opportunity to have these positive learning opportunities. So far in Exodus, we've tracked the Israelites becoming a nation. Uh, 
And there's more that the Israelites will need to do. Next week, they'll be getting the law. They'll be learning about how God wants them to be um, and, and how God wants them to, what it is God wants them to become. Um, next week, we're going to do some funky reading. We're going to read chapters 19 and 20, then 24, then 31 through 33. So we'll be skipping around a little bit. Uh, we'll revisit these chapters that we're jumping over later um, in, in a couple of years, in fact. But for now, um, we're trying to follow the story of God's people. And that means that we're going to be skipping some of the laws in our journey. The laws are important. Yes, genealogy is also important, to be sure. But they also tend to be a graveyard of many Old Testament reading plans. So in order for us to, to finish strong, we're going to try and backload those. That's all for Exodus 13 through 18. Uh, it is my hope that God would bless you in your reading of Scripture. <laughs>